Thank you for joining us on the Underdog Podcast, the place where we believe at one point in your life, you were an underdog and overcame adversity. And for that reason, we want to hear your story. I am your boy, Calvin Blackman. And I am Kyle Decker. This episode is powered by Crimcheck. Hey, Black, what's on your background? Skirt, skirt, squeaky clean. Mm, I don't know about that, but hey, everyone has a past. And while we aim to tell stories, we also know how important it is for employers to get the answers they need to make hiring decisions quickly, which is why we have partnered with a company called Crimcheck. They specialize in providing pre-employment screening and certified background checks. Don't be left in the dark. Contact Crimcheck today by going to crimcheck.net. Make sure to mention this ad to hear about their premier pricing solutions. Hey, Black. Yes, sir. Did you bring your dancing shoes? <laughs> Man, have you seen my moonwalk? <laughs> Our guest this week is a YouTube sensation. Jetson Labley broke the internet, dancing through the decades with his video, The Evolution of Dance. Yeah, and it's crazy how such a humble guy made history as the first viral video on YouTube. Justin is also a keynote speaker, author, MC, and dancer extraordinaire. Welcome, Judson. Thank you for having me. I yeah, appreciate it. Um, I know you've uh, you found some success, you know, years ago where I think you uh, you went you were the first one to go viral uh, on YouTube with over 300 million views, uh, you know, from showing I guess displaying or showcasing your uh, your dancing abilities, and you know, with this being the underdog, uh, we definitely want to talk about the trajectory and uh, y- your career and how it has you know just grown. Uh, but let's really go back to when you decided to really jump in and, and do the evolution of dance. Um, can you take us back to that moment? You know, before probably before you actually decided to do this on stage, but. Where did the evolution of dance really come from? And I know this is probably the first time you've ever been asked that question. So we'll just kick it off with that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's it's there's a lot of like anytime you have something that goes viral in the world, there's a lot of speculation about what was before and what was after. You know, I've I've been a professional speaker for over 20 years now. And the video when it went viral, I was about six years into my career. And there's still a lot of information that floats around. I'll I'll get Google alerts and I'll go read the article and they'll be like, and then he became a speaker after the dance took off, Uh, which I always find funny because that means I was doing that dance for no reason whatsoever. Like I was just (laughs) walking around town doing this dance on the side of the street that people would watch. But I wanted to be a speaker from when I was in high school. My parents growing up, my parents were really big fans of Zig Ziglar and some of the other individuals who were kind of the early pioneers of the self-help movement and the professional speaking world. And I always remember listening to them and watching them and thinking to myself, what, a, what an incredible job that you just get to go around and talk. Like people just pay you money to stand in front of them or to produce something that helps them get where it is that they want to go. And so on, it was always in the back of my mind. I never knew that I would be able to do it I really honestly felt that you had to do something first and then go talk about that. And so as I went through undergrad, I went to a small school in Ohio called Bluffton. I was actually an athlete. So I went and played baseball there for four years Then went to graduate school at Bowling Green. And I was always speaking any opportunity that I had. Classroom presentation for a group, I was the one that presented. Going to a conference, I would always submit to present some sort of program because I that was one of my joys was standing in front of people and giving a presentation. And when I was in graduate school, one of my programs, 
the class, our final grade was based upon starting a business from scratch. It was kind of a general business class in the recreational world because that was what my master's was in. And she said, I don't care what you do it on. I just want you to write a business plan so that you can learn all the different aspects to a business and what goes into a business and those things. And so I wrote it on starting a speaking and training company, started doing some research, met some people who were doing it really got an idea of what would go into it and how much you needed to charge and how long it would take to really get into that and become ingrained and see if you can make it or not. And so I started doing that while I was in graduate school. I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I started kind of just putting my hat out, talking to people that I already knew and saying, hey, I'm going to do this now. Would you like to hire me for your event? On and on. And I met an individual who was starting a new agency in the college market. So he was focusing on going to colleges and doing presentations. And he became kind of an early mentor for me. And he said, listen, one of the keys in our business is twofold. Number one, if they like you, they'll hire you. Like if they want to be around you, if they like you as a human being, they want to bring you in as long as you're not doing anything that's bad or you're terrible on stage. He goes, and then secondly, you have to do something on stage that is totally different than everybody else. You have to have one bit, one story, one piece, one shtick, whatever you want to call it, that people will remember you for. And so that was kind of the first realization that I needed to come up with something as your calling card. And so my early stages of talking were revolving around change and dealing with change and understanding that the world is always moving. I felt that I had a little bit of an easier go through high school and early colleges, because I didn't get attached to outcomes as much as I saw my friends getting attached to outcomes. I recognized at a younger age that we have control on our life through some aspects, but there's an element that's completely left up to chance. And there's things that are always going to be going on around us that we don't have control over and to not get upset over those things and instead stay focused in on the things that we do have control over. And so I was just like, okay, what can I do for change? And I tried a bunch of stuff early on. I tried slam poetry. I tried some stories and I was watching a comic once on stage in Wisconsin, making fun of people dancing in a wedding. He goes, I went to this wedding and he was non-white. He was a non-white individual. And he goes, I went to a wedding and I was the only non-white person there. And he goes, and all of a sudden a song came on during the reception and everyone in the entire wedding, the whole people, everybody in attendance, all the wedding party got up, ran to the dance floor and all did the same dance. And then when the song was over, they just kind of dropped their arms, looked at each other and were like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> and they went and sat back down. And then a couple songs later, another song came on and they all jumped up, ran to the dance floor, did the exact same dance together. And then it repeated throughout the course of the night. And it, it was much, much funnier watching it. And I remember laughing and being like, that is so true. There are so many songs that have specific dance moves to it. That when that song comes on, everybody does a specific dance move. And I just started laughing and we kind of joked. And I was like, huh, that'd be kind of funny to see some of those in a medley. And I was like, that'd be kind of funny to see some of those in order. And I ran upstairs to the hotel room I was at and I wrote down on a piece of paper, the evolution of dance. And I wrote down the first 12 songs that came to mind. Uh, And then I downloaded, I got all excited. I downloaded an audio mixing program. I learned how to mix music, figured out the mix first. So the very first mix contained 12 songs and it was about two and a half minutes long. I memorized the music, never once really practiced any of the dances and went out and performed it a week or two later. And it went over really, really well. 
the, I wish I had a video of the performance because I'm pretty sure the dance performance was not that good. But part of the appeal, I think, of the video and the dance itself is the nostalgia aspect of the songs when people hear. I'm up there demonstrating the dance, but most people watching are thinking in their minds of when they did that dance themselves. Right, right. We, we so both talking, yeah, we were really, both talking about how we have flashbacks of, of how I can't yeah. dance. But you, I was like, man, he can really. So were you able, um, not not to cut you off, I apologize, but were you always growing up able to like break dance and always dancing? Or is that something, you know, you evolved as well? Well, I was, I was not afraid to dance. So I got a great compliment from a choreographer once. Because of the video and the video going viral and all those things, I got to do a lot of really cool shit. <laughs> One of which was Gobi and a Weezer music video. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love those guys. So, yeah. I mean, Weezer, you know, I grew up in the, the 90s and, you know, Weezer was such a great band. And so Weezer really took advantage of the early days of viral video. And so they had a song called Pork and Beans and they had to make a music video for it because the label wanted them to and yada, yada. And so they somebody came up with the idea of let's get all of the current big time viral videos and let's make a let's make a video of all these viral videos so i got to go out to la and you know film for a day and a half and all that stuff but there was a choreographer there that was helping another group and he came over and he was talking to me he goes i just got to tell you and i don't want you to take this the wrong way he goes i love the fact that you're not a dancer and of course i was like oh yeah great thanks And he goes no what i mean is you can dance but you're not a trained dancer and he said there's a difference between having rhythm and being able to dance versus somebody who's taken training and has all of the, the critiquing, you know, all oh, they have the great long arm movement and the perfect stepping. He goes, and that's what I think most people who are afraid of dancing because they're afraid people are going to critique them on being a professional versus people who are like, I don't really care what you think. I'm just going to go dance. And that's what I always was growing up. I just didn't care what other people thought of me. <laughs> so when I was in high school, I could dance and I got, I went and did show choir my senior year, but I'm a terrible, terrible singer. I have no tone. I sound horrible, but they would put me in front and tell me not to sing out loud. <laughs> you know, I could dance and there was a lack of men who could dance in 1993 in Bucyrus, Ohio for our show choir. Yeah. Who would have thought that the kid from Bucyrus, Ohio, Ohio is now representing all white guys that can try to dance that can, that now can dance like, or want to aspire to be you. You're like the Michael Jordan of white guy dancers. That's, that's a, I don't know if that's a, I think that's a, a hopefully a, a pretty good accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. I think that might be one of the best compliments I've ever got. <laughs> <laughs> I got a question for you. Um, Cause you make it sound so easy and obviously you've evolved with you know comedy and dance and being a motivational speaker and everything but if you go back you know for someone listening who maybe wants to be a motivational speaker did you did you have those moments um of of fear you know because you didn't start dancing on stage until you had already kind of evolved and been on stage like you said for six years but did you have those moments of you know, going up on stage, nervousness, like preparation, understanding the art, you know, did you go through kind of that roller coaster of emotions? Yeah, absolutely. You know, starting off, and this is, I think, one of the hardest things whenever you have, you know, we're entering a new realm of work. You know, the idea of work is something that's being brought up a lot more. And, you know, what is work and why do we work? And all of those things that go around with that. And we're kind of entering this new world of, of lots of gigapreneurs, I like to call it, where people are moving from project to project, from gig to gig. 
Uh, we have the gig economy and all those things. And the biggest fear, I think, of anyone getting started in that is just losing that safety net. So when I decided I want to become a speaker, you know, my, my parents were very supportive, but also were like, well, do you think you're going to be able to get insurance? Like, have you thought about insurance? You know, the things you don't think about when you're 23 years old and fresh out of college slash graduate school. And I'm just like, yeah, okay, I'll be fine. I'm, you know, and there's, so there's a big element of luck that went into it early on that I didn't have an accident, that I didn't get sick, that I didn't have all those things and learning to be a, a professional speaker and learning the business side of it. There's a lot of hustle that goes into it because you're constantly trying to get new gigs and you're not, you don't book out years in advance, you know, still to this day, I'm entering my 20th year and I'm looking at my calendar for the spring that we, you know, we're recording this in December and I'm, I'm looking at my calendar for the spring and it's not as full as I would like it to be, even though that I know for the last 20 years, it's always like that. And then eventually it fills up, you know, things just happen to fall into place because like most things you, you do the work, you, you plant the seed, you cultivate, you continue to cultivate and do whatever it is within that industry. And then as things blossom and, and grow, you got to keep doing all of that as you're enjoying the fruits of your labor. You can't stop doing all that cultivating. And that's the cycle that I think is hard for a lot of times people to remind themselves when you are that underdog, when you don't already have somebody handing you everything that you want in life, you're always going to be happening to work towards what it is that you want. No doubt. And then I want to take sit on this for a second and, and go back to that moment. I see, obviously, you come out of, you know, um, not only leave Bluffton, go to Bowling Green, so you have a higher education, then you go into painting, right? Well, I had painted, so my dad was a school teacher, and he used to run, I have an older brother, older sister, and my dad, you know, being a school teacher in the 70s and 80s, it was great because he was able to be around for a lot more, but supporting a family of five. And my mom was an entrepreneur and they ran a business in town. So basically in the summers, my dad painted houses, which is a very common thing for teachers sure. to do some sort of trade labor, you know, in the summer. And so I learned how to paint from when I time I was like 11 years old. Gotcha. And one of the things I think that really, I think that is something that gets overlooked from my perspective sometime. I was so more comfortable going after a dream because I knew in the absolute worst case scenario, I had a skilled trade I could fall back on. And I still to this day, I'm always like, you know, if something happened and I, and heaven forbid something happened and I, nobody wanted to ever hire me again, I could always go back and paint houses. It's not what I want to do, but it's a skill that is always going to be marketable, so to say. Yeah. Love and that. So when I finished graduate school, yeah. And I, and I was doing that while I was in graduate school. It was a great way to make extra money. And if, and if you know how to run a small crew, you know, you can make a little bit more money than just being the hourly employee. And so I had a friend who ran a painting company and I was telling him what I was doing. And he's like, Hey, listen, I need reliable, intelligent people to help me in this company. He goes, so if you're willing I will let you come work whenever you want. Like you can make your own schedule. You know, we can ensure that if you've got a gig and that was a huge boon for that first year and a half to know that, to, to know that I had some income coming in, but then also to have an employer who was willing to let me kind of do both and everything worked out really well because whenever I had an appointment to sell a painting job or whenever I actually needed to paint because we were shorthanded on the crew, he knew that I was going to do it and I was going to show up. 
Yeah. And that's what I was trying to get as where's that point of adverse condition or thought process. And we've seen that in everyone's journey or underdog journey, like taking that leap of faith. Cause that's a, you know, I'm sitting here uh, stalking your LinkedIn and some of your other stuff, but looking at your trajectory through your career path. And, you know, what I'm seeing is there, there has to be that piece of the evolution to your career, which is going from, you know, taking that chance, but obviously it was a calculated chance. And I'm always myself, I'm always fascinated because I started a business, took a leap of faith, uh, with, with another person and just trying to understand, uh, your thought process and what, what gave you that ability or what gave you the confidence. So thank you for sharing. And that's where I was. I know sometimes Calvin always looks at me. He's like, where are you going with this rabbit hole? <laughs> um, but that's where I was really trying to understand because everything I saw, whether if it was, you know, Ellen tonight show, you know, everything is just evolution of dance. And I, I really wanted to learn the Judson prior to see, okay, before he got into public speaking and then just added this great, um, addition to his public speaking ability, which was where the evolution of dance. So, um, anyway, thank you for sharing that. I think that's important. And I really enjoyed hearing, you know, how you took that leap of faith. No, my pleasure. And you're right. Cause I think there's so many people that have ideas for businesses. There's so many people that have, it's kind of like a, you don't know, I don't ever like to put people in categories, but you kind of have the people who always have ideas and they dream and they go after them and then and sometimes they fail and sometimes they don't fail and, they, and they're constantly moving and thinking. And then you have people who they just need to have a safety net. You know, I get, you, you're probably sure you had people tell you this when you started your business, you know, I could never do that. Like, what are you going to do if it doesn't work? Like, what are you going to, like, where's your paycheck going to come from? How are you going to do? And that was something I remember hearing early on. And even still to this day, though, there'll be people who'll be like, so how's that all whole speaking thing working out for you there? You think you're going to keep doing that for a while, you know, or are you going to go get a real job or whatever it might be? And I think that's because for so many people, not knowing what's going to happen next. Yeah, no, I mean, it's is really, really hard to handle. Yeah, I mean, I think you took a, you know, where most people don't take that risk or that leap of faith you were going, willing to go, you know, where the, you know, the, the very few do that you were willing to take that risk. So I'm glad it's worked out for you. You should go back to them and say, hey, how about them apples? <laughs> I'm, doing pretty, I'm doing pretty well over here. I don't know. Last time you've seen them, I'm, I got like 300 million views, this and that. I got speaking arrangements booked through uh, the spring. So uh, no, you've had obviously a sustainable career of excellence. So, so, uh, so Judson, after, you know, you go viral and throughout this time, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, obviously. With, uh, but as you start to pick up momentum, you know, with the video and different things uh, and your life starts to take a turn, you start to see some success. You know, what was that process like as you, you know, when you first get reached, you know, you, you have an Ellen or, you know, an Oprah start to reach out. You know, what was that process of your life like and, and around what time, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, that whole time frame when when that when that happened sure absolutely it's such a unique experience i wish everybody could experience it at some point in time in their life because I'll, I'll never experience anything else again like that when you get to be the flavor of the month for however long and i was really lucky because for those who, who are listening who don't know long story short in 2006, I uploaded a six-minute clip of a dance routine called the Evolution of Dance, which is the last, at that point was the last 50 years of popular dance moves, me dancing to a, a mix one right after the other. I actually uploaded it onto YouTube so I could get the embedding code to put it into my MySpace profile, was why I actually uploaded it on YouTube. Wow. Because <laughs> at the time, YouTube was only about a year old and really was not well known. 
it hadn't grown as it did. And so when my video started going viral, it happened over the course of a couple of the, like four weeks later after I initially uploaded it, it started going quote unquote viral. And this was in the early days of viral video where the term viral video didn't even really exist. So this is when people were still emailing links. So, you know, you had a chain email of, you know, you had that uncle or that aunt who sent an email out every week to their whole family uh, of funny jokes or, you know, people who just were curating links. And so that was how YouTube really got its traction early on was these links. And the first kind of sniff of, okay, this might be bigger than I really realized was I was out in Washington speaking at a school had just been in San Francisco and it had just gone viral. It had hit, it had hit, I think 500,000 views over the course of about five days. It went from 30 to 90 to like 200 to 500,000. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is incredible. And I remember thinking I might get a gig out of this. That's all I remember thinking. Like I might, somebody might hire me because of this. (laughs) And there's a voicemail from somebody I don't know. And the voicemail is basically from somebody inside YouTube. And they're like, Hey, Judson, this is, and I don't remember whose name was this. This is Tom. I work over here at YouTube. And first off, I just got to say, we all love your video. Your video is incredible. We think it's so funny. It's great. And well, I'm reaching out and we normally don't do this because we, we don't really use people's personal information from their profile, but a producer at the today show just called And they wanted to know if we would be willing to connect you with them because they're interested in talking to you about coming on the show. And of course, I called back immediately was like, "Um, you can go ahead and give them my info. I I give you permission to release my personal information to the Today Show. (laughs) And at that point, I was like, okay, this is good. Because again, this is not, it's not normal. You know, nowadays, viral videos are, there are shows that literally are like, what's viral this week? You know, back then, if you were sending a video or a video usually had to be sent as a full attachment. So there's a lot of things that just happened. Luckily for me that in 2006 was when high speed internet started reaching rural areas in America, that DSL lines were becoming commonplace instead of dial up. And so that's one of those things, you know, I think we, yes, I would love to say that it was all my doing, but it was also a lot of synergistic random things happening at once. And so as my video got popular, YouTube started becoming more popular. So then news outlets, media outlets started using my video as an example of something you might see on YouTube. So we kind of grew together right at this perfect time where YouTube was reaching that tipping point and people knowing what it was and understanding what it was. And then my video became a great example that kind of appealed to a wide range of audiences. And then basically it was just, okay, I'm going to ride this wave until it dies. And it's been almost 14 years now. <laughs> it's yeah, still, it's still and I'm still getting track. On it. Yeah. Which is insane. You should have told the guys from YouTube when they sold to Google, right? They, you know, for billions of dollars just to give you a little fraction of it and be, you'll be all good too. <laughs> I tried when, when I was on Oprah, they, so when they first were starting uh, the couple of the founders, they were really notorious for not doing interviews. They're, you know, they're just tech guys and they really didn't like doing interviews and stuff. And, but they came on the Oprah show in 2009 and I was sitting there next to him talking about that. And I was just laughing and I was like, what are you guys doing here? I know you guys don't do interviews. You know, you don't really go on television shows. And they looked at me and they were just like, but it's Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) And then like about, I think two days before that, 
they it was announced that Google had bought them for you know 1.2 billion dollars or whatever it was. And I remember jokingly being like, you know, can I get some of that? Like, what? And they were just like, ha ha ha. No, but thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're I'm like, well, I pretty much, you know, was the fir- your first viral video. I mean, I should at least get something. Something, right? Come on, right? But um, you created I'll, viral. Yeah, I'll be honest, Judson. I when when uh, Tiffany because they went to the conference and saw you sp- speak, and they came back and like da 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 da, and I. Didn't really put two and two together when they reached back out to um, to have you come on the show. And I'm like, well, who is this guy? And they sent me a video. I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's no <laughs> way we landed this. Like, are you serious? This is incredible. That guy? And uh, I was going nuts because I was like, that is the best. Because I remember watching it. I'm probably like 100 of those 300 million. I mean, I, I love that video, man. I was like, cause I thought you could teach me how to dance, and I still... There's no hope. <laughs> there is no hope. I can't rap. I can't dance. You know, I, I can't do anything, I don't think. I don't know. What, what, I guess I can... What, what do I do well, Calvin? I don't even know. You run a business. I, I'm pretty right. sure you can, you can start a business, you manage a business, business. pretty well. Yeah, those are right there. Right. So... I want to transition a little bit more. Um, so you have a very unique um, style, you know, with what you do from comedy to motivational speaking to, of course, throwing in the dance uh, with, you know, with the times always changing and just being current. You know, what do you do to make sure you stay current and stay up on, you know, what's happening in the world, but also come off, you know, as comical, but also make sure you're getting the message across. You know, what is your preparation and what really goes into when you're up on stage? Because you have a very, very unique style, as I said, and I was very, very impressed. Well, first off, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And that's always been, that's probably the hardest thing. When you watch, a when people hear what you do for a living and you say, oh, I'm a professional speaker, they're always curious because it sounds like such a weird oddity because everyone has an idea in their mind of what, a motivational speaker is, what a trainer is, what a preacher or a pastor or somebody from a religious aspect. And so they always kind of attach it to one of those things. You know, a lot of people jokingly, if you're from the 90s or you grew up in the 90s, you know, everyone remembers Matt Foley, the motivational speaker character on Saturday Night Live played by Chris Farley. And part of the reason that was so funny and appealed because there are a lot of speakers who are like that, who are very like, you're going to be the best thing ever. And then people would find out later on that that person was not what they claimed to be on stage. So from the very, very get go, my biggest thing I always wanted was to be as authentic as I could from my perspective. So I am not a reciter. I do write out scripts. I do write out thoughts. I do work on story development and things. But when I go to talk, I try not to sound 100% scripted. So I I wanted to say early on, I kind of made the decision that if somebody saw me twice in a week, they could at least say that it wasn't exactly the same. They might say it was, oh, that story was dissimilar, you know, and you tell a story enough and it gets to be the same. And so as we go through life and as things change, as far as people's attention span and what people are talking about and what people are thinking about and what's going on inside each industry, that becomes the trademark is how do you make it relevant for the people sitting in the audience? So I always liken it kind of to you're building a puzzle with various puzzle pieces. Me as a presenter, I have a lot of puzzle pieces and I'm going to create a picture for my audience. And so I'm going to pull different puzzle pieces. Now, if it's a new audience in a new industry or they will, 
my, my client really wants some customization, then I might have to go build a couple new puzzle pieces to make that picture what they want it to be. And sometimes that's really easy. Sometimes somebody sees you and says, we want you to do exactly what you did, but for people in the staffing industry, or we want you to do exactly what you did, but for people in this particular industry. And then other times they go, well, we really want to sit down with you and have a real conversation and try to customize and make it as relevant as possible. And if that's the case, then I've got to do my due diligence and do research on the entity, the association, the organization, and then the industry as well that they're in. Because there are a lot of basic tenets in business and life and philosophy that cross all industries, but there also are a lot of things that are very specific to industry into industry. Now, do you have Judson on as far as a core compsy of what you deliver? I know most of the messages I saw, and once again, I wasn't in Minneapolis to hear your keynote, but is it most where you talk about the most challenges for folks is to overcome, overcome change. Is that really what most of your, um, presentation circle around or where, where do you, like you said, you customize that or is that the base? So but the base is pretty much in, in, I try to keep it as simple as possible. I can talk about a lot of different things, but from a pure business and marketing standpoint, you know, you experience this in your industry, you want, it's easier to be more specific than less specific as far as marketing and knowing who you're going to market to and who your customers are going to be, you know, you guys in the staffing world are able to say, okay, these are the type of places that we staff. It doesn't mean you can't staff somewhere else because you've got the processes in place. So I usually revolve around change, leadership, and then the difference between evolution and change. So change is always kind of a core concept. And depending on who the audience is and what they're looking for, we might spend a lot of time talking about change and just convincing them that change is happening within their industry. So it might be a lot of examples of change and funny things about how things have changed over time. But then sometimes groups are aware that things are changing and now they want to know, okay, what are we going to do about it? And so then the talk might shift more towards the, okay, you've accepted that things change. Now, how can we help lead that evolution or how can we help create the change that we want? So a lot of times in our business, they liken it to that. There are why talks and there are how talks. A why talk is convincing an audience of why something is the way that it is or why they should be doing something. And then a how talk is how do you do blank. And what most people would say is, oh, well, you should have a both that should be all together. And the hard part is, is most audiences aren't ready for both. If somebody is not aware of a why first, you can't really even convince them to start thinking about a how until they have the why. Right. And if they've already got the why, they don't want to waste time on talking about the why. They just want to know how. And, and I, I think that goes to the um, – and when I, I, what I think about this uh, kind of when you were first started talking about this was – think about comedians who um you know sometimes there's comedians who you'll see do a stand-up and then you know six months later you may you may have saw them live and then you may see a, a tv special and they do the exact same routine and you're like this is no longer funny it's like that's how they go irrelevant so i guess i just say that because i i truly respect your craft 
um, for what what you're having to do because you're crossing, you know, whether it's professional, whether it's addressing colleges, you know, whether whether you know you're addressing, I don't know, high school, but like you're having to develop content for, I guess, across all markets. Uh, how do you ensure that you know one market won't suffer, um, you know, as opposed to another market maybe getting more attention based on you know whatever you're doing at that particular, you know, that particular time of year or whatnot. I don't know if you can ensure that some won't suffer. You could probably make the argument. I'm really still in a very unique position. I really, I started my career in the college and youth market, which that was primarily my audiences that I spoke to mostly because I was still young. And unless you're, unless you're some astronomical entrepreneur or person and you started a business at 16 and we're a billionaire by 18. Most audiences don't want to listen to a 20 something year old talk to them about anything because <laughs> they just look at you and they're like, you're 20 something. What are you going to tell me? <laughs> so as I got older, I started talking to older, you know, the audiences started kind of going with me. So I still really enjoy talking to youth audiences. I, the energy of a youth audience is about as good as it gets. The excitement that they've got to listen to what you have. So you could probably make the argument that because I still talk to some youth markets and some college things, but also do corporate and organizations and associations that maybe I'm not doing those audiences justice by solely focusing on them. But in that same argument, I would say, is that gives you an even better scope of the world that's going on around you. So the hardest part is finding those reference points. And so I have to work harder now when it comes to the, especially to the younger audiences, because I'm no longer doing the things that they're doing on a regular basis. <laughs> I am not on Snapchat. <laughs> I am not watching TikTok all day long. So I have to make sure that I find, that's the hardest part is when you go, I think for me, when I go back to the younger audiences, I have much more comfort level now talking about things, people 20 years older than me. And 10 years younger than me, I think is my sweet spot. So the people who are 20 years young, I'm 40, I'll be 44 in, in March. So people who are like 18, like I'm really starting to get to that creepy uncle age where they're not real sure where to put me. I'm still too young to be like their father, <laughs> but I'm still way too old to be like just that kind of cooler, older person than them. <laughs> so I, I got a, I got a, I got a thing at, and Calvin was like, I don't know if you should do this or not. So I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway. So but yet I just reminded him, I said, Hey, you gotta, you, yeah. you gotta, ask. so, so in age, <laughs> it looks like you've gotten younger. Cause in the first video, the first uh, viral video of evolution of dance, you had like no hair and now you go on all your pictures. I'm telling you like that 10 year challenge or even 20 year challenge or 15 or 13 year challenge would be from six to 19. It's like, you've gotten a, a fountain of youth. So what's going on there? <laughs> and I have no hair, so I'm listening for the secret. <laughs> I would love to tell you that there's a secret. So my initial, the first video, I had highlights in my hair because <laughs> it was like, so I did have hair. It's just, okay. it was so blonde on top that the spotlight, when it would shine on it, just made it look like I was bald. Because <laughs> I, I kept and saying, look at this look video I, and look at this video. I'm like, dude, the guy looks younger. Excuse, if yep. you look at my outfit at that time too, and I still to this day don't, I had like a, I was wearing the orange crush t-shirt, which was just random that I had that particular t-shirt on that day, but I had it tucked into my jeans. Yes. I remember <laughs> I was wearing like these low rise, really comfortable jeans at the time. 
And so style-wise, I probably was like an older person's style with a tucked-in t-shirt. And then <laughs> and then I I got a little more into fitness. I was always an athlete. I think I kind of did that same trajectory that a lot of athletes do. You're 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 burning so much energy when you're young and an athlete that you just eat whatever you want and then you get out of being an athlete. So you're not working out nearly as much as you were, but you're still doing the same things habit-wise that you were before. And I probably gained a little bit of extra weight, especially in the face area. So my face in 2006, kind of to 2009, was a little puffier. And then I just kind of, I got into some triathlons for a while and was doing some half Ironmans and things like that. And so I would fit, I thinned out some in the face. And then I grew a beard when I finally could actually grow facial hair, like in completely instead of in patches. So I appreciate the compliment. It makes me feel good. And that, but I still have a baby face. I yeah. definitely have a baby face without a doubt. So, so if you, you probably haven't, I'm sure, cause you're a busy man, but if you listen to our previous episodes, Calvin's always giving me a hard time about my dad bod. So I'm 34, obviously you're 44. So I got 10 years. I need to make that 10 year challenge. And he's looking at me, look at when you said half Ironmans and triathlons and everything you are saying, he looked at me and started pointing and he's like, yeah, you're, you, you got to follow Judson's path. So we all do. We all do. <laughs> yeah, I, it's hard. I mean, health and fitness is the old, I mean, the, we all know it, you know, the older you get, the harder it gets. It's just, our society is not set up and there's no fault of any one thing or any, there's no thing to specifically, but it's not set up, especially here in America for healthy living. Yeah. It just yeah. isn't. Especially if you're traveling and the Midwest. So I'm curious real quick for a selfish question here. Cause I travel a lot for work. We're in eight States, so on and so forth, 21 centers that I go and travel to. How do you, now that you're on a, you're a road warrior and in a plane or on in a car, how do you maintain? Cause like I said, you, you are, you know, when you look at yourself, your, your, um, your health is significantly improved. So how do you manage that on the road? Uh, it's hard. It definitely is. That's, that's the hardest part. I, I'm a little bit luckier in that when I travel as a road warrior, when I travel, I go somewhere, I get to still run my own schedule. Meaning, you know, for you, you go in, you're going to one of your sites, you got to go in for meetings there at that site during the day. And then maybe you've got some more meetings or you've got a another site visit with a client later on that afternoon. You know, me, when I go, I, I land in Dallas, let's say I get off the plane, I get my rental car, I go to my hotel, and then I might not have to be on stage until the next morning. So I've got work to do, but I have a little bit more flexibility in that. So for me, I just try to always, one of the things I do is depending on who your health insurance is now, depending on what kind of workouts you like to do. I right now am into a workout called Orange Theory, which is Orange Theory Fitness, which is a franchised organization. And they are pretty much located in almost every major city across the country and in lots of cities. So I use them because one of the things I like about them is I can go to anyone in the country, to any one of their studios in the country and use a pass that I've already paid for here in Cleveland. Sure. Certain that's great advice. Certain insurance companies now have these memberships where you can, like here in Ohio, we have uh, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, and I know for them and several other carriers as well, you can pay like $24 a month and you might get a list of 100 different fitness organizations across the country that you get to go to those places. You know, the one good thing about health insurance in the last couple of years is they've really started to recognize, holy crap, if people stay in shape and are involved in fitness, we spend less money on them in the future. 
So let's go ahead and do all that we can to help them be fit. Uh, and so that's the biggest thing I think you can do is you got to just try to figure out where can you work it in. And then it's, it's like most things in life. It's a discipline thing. That's where we struggle. Yeah. No, that's a great, <laughs> yeah, knowledge that's nugget. I mean, that's great takeaway. Great. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm definitely going to look into that. Get with the insurance carrier, something I didn't know that you just dropped on. And like I said, I love taking knowledge nuggets away from on a daily basis. And that's a great one for anybody, let alone just me. I'm glad I asked the question. So we got an um, episode in it, or every, we got an episode. This is an episode, every episode, excuse me. We have a rapid fire question. A uh, couple we, we like to do. So Judson, we're going to put you on the hot seat. I don't think it's too hot. I was looking at the questions. I think Mr. Blackman. Uh, yeah, we kept them warm. We kept them warm. I don't think he, we maybe we'll heat them <laughs> up. We'll th- but uh, Calvin, why don't you fire the first yeah, one? First. First one we've got. Um, you've probably never been asked this before. Um, what is the most difficult dance for you to perform? Personally, I loved your MC Hammer typewriter. I love the worm. And I loved when you did. I believe it was the Soldier Boy cranked that. So when I watched it, I was like, my man is doing it. But you know, for the listeners and just curious, what's the most difficult one for you to perform? Well, I had to take out the worm probably about four or five years ago. So that one was getting to the point where I just it physically. So the <laughs> my running joke is my dancing is going to go from funny to sad someday. <laughs> and I just need to know when that is. And like, that'll be the end of, it. you know, like my friends and family need to be like, okay, now it's, it's time to start working on your next thing, like your next shtick. <laughs> since I took that out the hardest one probably is the typewriter then the ability to like do the pitter patter real fast yeah left and right yeah that's 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 been tough for me since since 1990 whenever he came out with it and you've you've <laughs> mastered it for sure no doubt now speaking staying on um the topic of the evolution of dance what what was the what is the most requested dance by your fans Ooh, so that that will depend on the age of the audience, uh, you know. And I could, if I shut my eyes and did the dance, I could tell you how old the audience was by their reactions and how, like, when they start reacting. So the if you know the Brady Bunch dance, the keep on keeping on, mm-hmm. that's really popular. The Apache jump on it, where the dance actually came from Will Smith and Fresh Prince of Bel Air, Carlton on stage. Carlton. Yes. Yeah, you grew up in that area. That's really popular. <laughs> and now, uh, probably the most recent one, I'm trying to think of what the most. So the newer, newer ones, Soldier Boy is really popular. People love Soldier Boy one. And then Gangnam Style probably gets the biggest laugh of the newer stuff when that comes around. Because I think that one was so recognized. So many people saw that when it came out. You know, you know, still to this day, I mean, it's, it's got four billion views or something ridiculous. Oh yeah, it, and it's it, it continues to grow. That yeah, that one's definitely impressive. I know when I uh, I was in high school, maybe junior high or or high school, when Fresh Prince and Carlton did that dance. It was on Monday night because that's when it came on, and I remember going to school on Tuesday, and everyone in the hallway was doing that damn dance because <laughs> it's legitimately one of probably the funniest episodes that they ever had. So. Was, oh yeah, I mean their facial expressions <laughs> yeah. priceless, and they're supposed to be in Vegas doing it. Yeah, I remember that that episode, priceless. So, um, most awkward place you've been asked to perform the evolution of dance? Ooh, that's an excellent question. So <laughs> there are lots of them, but probably the funniest one was in a living room <laughs> early on, before the video became popular. Like so. I had been doing the dance for six years 
And there was a time before the video became popular that I had moved to Cleveland where I, or this place called Lakewood. And I was living with a new roommate. So one of my friends, but he had some friends and then people were talking about the dance itself. And they're just like, what is like, I, they'd never seen it. They had no idea. And somebody's like, you should just do it. And I was like, jokingly, cause I had been drinking a little bit. I was like, Oh, I get paid to dance like trying to be all cool and blah, blah, blah. And then somebody, I think, I want to say they threw down like $40 between like the six of them. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I played, got the mix, played it and danced for like four people in my own living room. <laughs> That's classic. Too bad there wasn't like a camera on the wall or something. That could have been your next viral. Oh yeah. I mean, it was like pre, I mean, it was probably like 2004, 2005. Oh, okay. So it was even pre like camera cell phone, you know, anything like that. It would be, I would have given anything to see that. But then I once did it once too in an event on a, maybe about a three foot by three foot stage. Like I barely moved the entire time. And I was just kind of like walking through the motions. It was at some nightclub for some corporate event. And I was like, for real? Oh, okay, whatever. Wow. You got so to adapt, adapt there. That's, that's that's make some, it work. Yeah. That's some yeah. adverse conditions there. Who would you, what, what program or what show would you go back um, to, or if you had to choose one between Ellen, Oprah, let's say the today show, good morning, America, any of the big time mainstream uh, media uh, programs you've been on, what, which one would you go back to and why? Mm, that's a great question. I think I would probably go back to the Ellen show. I think a combination of things. One, I, the morning shows are great, but if you just look at, you know, the morning shows, you're in, you're out. It's quick. They want to get you on. They want to get you out. I think I would like to go back to Ellen and have a little bit more of a conversation and talk about some of the other things aside from just the video. And that was one of the things I really learned early on. When the video first became viral, that's all anybody wanted me to talk about, yeah. which I get, and I'm totally fine with that. But I had some good friends who had done a lot of PR and done appearances on media and said, listen, they're happy if you give them questions. Like they're okay if you say, I also want to talk about this. And so I had to do a a little better job of making sure that what I actually did for a living came up. And the, the reason I was doing the dance wasn't just to create this video, but it was because it's a memorable thing that attached to the concept that everything changes and kind of doing that. So I didn't get to really talk about that much on with Ellen at the time. Um, I was the second fiddle the day cause the day I was on Tiger Woods was on too. So yeah, kind of a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sharing the stage bit. with Tiger Woods at Ellen. Eh, you know, that's, that's a pretty yeah, good you know bucket list to do. Yeah. We're the black, black yeah. and Decker here is just trying to get, uh, I don't even know. Like we, we would take about 40 steps below Ellen. I don't even know what that would be. I think but we're there. <laughs> we're there right now. <laughs> we're like in the basement of uh yeah, building just trying to trying to get uh that's what we do appreciate your time. Yeah. Uh first and foremost. Love um love your message. Like you said, it's you're a lot more than just the evolution of dance. You are, you know, inspiring folks by giving them a positive message of how to evolve with change and uh doing it in a way that can be received in, in uh content by adding humor and, and dance. So Thank you so much for for bringing positivity in the world in a place we really need it. Uh, as we as we finish, as I said, how how do folks follow you um, and engage with uh, what you're doing, or even book you, or even book you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it greatly. Uh, my website basically is just my name, so that's J U D S O N 
L-A-I-P-P-L-Y.com. So JudsonLifely.com. If you can't remember that, which I totally understand because nobody, I can't spell to save my life. So if you just Google Judson and evolution of dance, it'll pretty much pop up pretty soon. You'll be able to get to my website that way. Um, You can follow me on various channels, but I'm pretty sporadic. I don't do a real good job of continually creating content, uh, mostly because I'm lazy and because I am 44 and I'm just not quite young enough to be obsessed with the constant creation of content. (laughs) Like, I get it and I know how it works, but there's a part of me that's just like, "Mm, sometimes I like doing nothing. (laughs) Right. Are you ever uh, in the Cincinnati area? I am, as a matter of fact. I was just going to let you guys know I'm actually going to be down there in February. Definitely. We'd definitely love to connect with you. Um, I know we could have said that probably off air, but definitely, uh, you know, we'll definitely love to connect. You know, truly did enjoy this conversation with you, man. And like Kyle said, thank you so much for, for taking time, um, you know, around this time of year. Uh, we learned a lot and, and looking forward to, you know, what's to come, you know, for yourself, your career as you continue to evolve little wordplay there. Thanks. Oh, look <laughs> at you. Yeah, he, yeah, you must be wearing off on Mr. Blackman. He actually, uh, his his word his words are actually uh, coming out of his mouth uh, in a fluent manner. So. I used to be a rapper. Thank you, Judson. So <laughs> you obviously taught him something at the conference, so he brought it away. But uh, yeah, thank you again. And uh, UDP Nation is going to be really excited to listen to this episode and uh, super excited to uh, release it. So thank you very much. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so much for allowing me to... Uh, come and uh, shoot the breeze a little bit thanks for listening to the underdog podcast please subscribe and rate our podcast on the apple and google podcast apps and send our twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at underdog pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt see you next week on the u d p